If you don't have a Bible, um, if you'd raise your hand, the ushers are going to come down front and make sure you get one. Everybody else, uh, open to 1 Peter. And if you get a Bible that we're giving you, it's page 656, I believe. Lift your hand up, and the guys will make sure you get one. Page 656. Webster's Dictionary defines hope this way, to cherish a desire with anticipation, i.e., like uh, hoping for a promotion, or, for you football fans, hoping that ASU wins a national title. Now, they looked pretty good yesterday, so this might not uh, be funny anymore, but it's that kind of wishful thinking, right? It's, it's classically not anchored anything solid, it's just a feeling. So when we use the word hope, we use it like that. We point it at things we wish we had or wish didn't happen, and we say, I hope that. Well, I, I want to, I'm going to push on that word today and try to define it from Peter's vantage point because it's a drastically different definition. In fact, hope is a word that God has given the church um, for a foundation. It's anchored in certainty, but um, our world is struggling with hope. And, I, and the sad part about it, I don't think the church struggles much less. I, I uh, kind of Googled. Uh, hope, and I found a blog. Now, th- this person is, is uh, nobody you know, um, but I think in its, in its writing, it describes really how people feel about this idea of hope. Let me just read it to you um, and uh, see what you think. This person says, why do we need hope? I mean, we all know that while that song about hope, that, that nice motivational lecture you last attended, that movie you saw, the news report that you saw where justice had, had been delivered finally are good factors, but with a low self-life. Then before you know it, darkness descends again. Stuff happens to people who do no wrong. Psychos turn enemies and, and friends turn psychos. And another irony about life is that there is this pattern to it. When things are going all right and you actually start believing that things are as nice as they seem, they suddenly change their color scheme to the exact opposite. While we keep reading about the battle between wrong and right, the, the good and the evil, nothing prepares us as for the evil present in good and the wrongs that rights commit. The only uh, resultant that remains and is actually more faithful than any of these factors is cynicism. At least doubt is permanent. (laughs) Hope, on the other hand, is like drugs. It gives you a temporary high, but then reality strikes and you have to face the consequences. One of my dear friends once said that hope is, is a fool's weapon. Look at this world. Every day, things seem to be getting worse. The crimes against innocent, the crimes on the streets and on the internet. You can't trust anyone. You can't depend on anyone. Uh, People you know show sides that you'd rather not see. Forgive me for acting the devil's advocate, but happiness, trust, virtue, good, and God all disappear when you need them most. Pain and hatred at least stay. You can never predict or claim that if you are fair to people, they shall be fair to you. That if you do good, you will get good in return. But I can bet that if you do something bad, you shall receive bad in return. Cynics say that hope is a pretty good way of spending time between two tragedies. Your life may, be, uh, may not actually be beautiful, but at least it will seem beautiful. That, that cynic is me. It makes you question, why do we need hope? So the motion picture industry can earn megabucks. So that motivational speakers and religious leaders don't have to go search for new jobs. I mean, if life isn't going to be fair, why bother with hope? 
Now, now clearly, this is Debbie Downer here in this story, a, a very sad perspective on, on the idea of hope. And, and people, people tend to look at hope sort of like that wishful thinking, like I said, or it's the light at the end of, of the tunnel. But as someone once said, I think it's funny, uh, that the light of the tunnel has been turned off due to budget cuts. So we're, we're all, all discouraged right now. Um, and I, I think this is sort of true. Hopefully it's not totally true. But I talk to enough believers who struggle with hope sometimes in the midst of their suffering and the circumstances they're going through. There's got to be something different. I mean, if we're talking about somebody like this who, who denies the existence of God or denies that God is good or denies that Jesus, the expression of God, come to redeem us and deal with our issues, if that's a perspective, they deny all that, then there has to be something radically different about us who claim Christ, right? And, and yet I think there's a challenge for us, a fight for us for for hope, we, we begin this series of First Peter, and some have entitled the whole the whole book like this uh, this manual on hope, or how to how to experience joy and suffering. Whatever title you, you want you want to give it, um, Peter talks about um, this deep seated, solid, anchored in the character and the promises of God. Hope. It's different than saying, "I hope so," or "I wish so." It's, it's more than a feeling. It's anchored in something more solid than our experiences or our, or, our, or things that are around us. And so the reason why this letter has power is because of who it's written to. I mean, the, the early church here was under some serious stress. They were dealing with a lot of pushback from the world around them to the Jesus in them. The world hated Christ. They hated the message of Christ. The religious elite hated the Christians who proclaimed the message of Christ, and the heat is on. And so there's a scattering that takes place in the early church. You don't have to turn there, but in Acts, if you ever want to read it, you can start in chapter 7 and just experience the message of Stephen when Stephen is full of grace and power, and he's preaching to the religious elite at the time, and he has this wonderful declaration of God from the beginning of time through all the patriarchs, and then ends up with the culmination of Christ and calls him God. What are they? They do. They rush on him. They throw him outside of the city and they kill him. They stone him to death. And it says in chapter 8, verse 1, that persecution came on the church to such a degree that the church went scattered. Now, we know in hindsight that God does a lot of great missionary work with scattered Christians. Right? If they were, everything was perfect and they hung out in Jerusalem and it was all good, they wouldn't go anywhere. They wouldn't reach the uttermost parts of the world. But persecution, God could take a bad thing and do a great thing with it, like us, like missions work around the world. And yet, that's the experience. I have to pay for my faith with my life. Now, I, I didn't even put it in this message, but I went through a list of all, all the apostles. And they all died a horrible death because of naming Jesus. The, the, the perspective has to change for the church. And so, so Peter writes this letter, this letter of hope, to a suffering people because of Jesus. And, and so it's very, very in, encouraging that he does because we need it. Let me, let me give you a little backdrop to the, the people. Um, as Peter penned this epistle, the dark clouds of the first great outbreak of official persecution designated by the insane emperor Nero were already gathering on the horizon seeking scapegoats to divert the public suspicion that he started the great fire of July A.D. 64 that devastated Rome. Nero pinned the blame on the Christians whom he already perceived as enemies of Rome because they would worship none but Christ. 
As a result, they were encased in wax and burned at the stake to light his gardens at night, crucified and thrown to the wild beasts. Though the official persecution apparently was confined to the vicinity of Rome, attacks on Christians undoubtedly spread unchecked by the authorities to other parts of the empire. It was as a result of Nero's persecution that both Peter and Paul were martyred, but before he died, Peter wrote this magnificent epistle to believers whose suffering would soon intensify. Throughout the centuries, beleaguered Christians have benefited from the apostles' wise counsel and gentle, encouraging words of comfort about I, I don't even know how to put us in that culture. I don't even know how to put us in that scene of, of what it is to truly suffer. But if anybody knows words about hope in the midst of problems, we can assume the, that Peter does, right? So I want to take a second and, and, and describe Peter. Since he's the author, it's important for us to know this guy. Most of us, when we think of Peter, we go, well, he's the rock of the church, right? He's the, church that, he's the guy, the, the leader of the early church. He's somebody special. But I want us to focus more on who he was apart from Christ because we're going to find ourselves, wow, relating to this guy more and understanding that the work that God did in him to bring him this hope is available to us. But this guy was a flamboyant personality. He was emotional. He was loud. He was a combative. He was courageous. He was impulsive. He was the ultimate foot in mouth kind of a guy, you know? I like this guy. He reminds me of me. Um, he was the disciple who um, Jesus asked, who, who do you say that I am? Remember this? And he says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus said, bless you, because God revealed that to you. Only, only to follow it up, Jesus said, and by the way, this, this son of the living God has to suffer, and Peter's the one who rebuked Jesus, said, no, this suffering thing doesn't work for me. Like, let's not do suffering. And it was Jesus who responded back to foot and mouth, Peter, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> so he calls, him, he calls him a bad word right there. Um, after the rich young ruler story, you remember this, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and says, what do I do to be saved? And, and the rich young ruler, uh, or Jesus said to the, the rich young ruler, well, keep the commandments of which he said, I've done since I was young. I've always kept the commandments. And, and Jesus knew his issue. His issue was his stuff, his money. His God really was his own provision. And so he said, well, then his last thing you do, take all your stuff, all your possessions, sell them and give it to the poor, follow me. And we know the story. The, the rich young ruler, head down, walked away sad, would not receive what Jesus offered because what he had was what he wanted. And so it's interesting that right after that scenario with the rich young ruler, you would think you would just learn gobs of lessons there if you're Peter watching. But Peter, right on the heels of that story, he asks Jesus what's in it for him. Like, we left everything. How is this going to pay off? And, uh, of course, Jesus rebuked that. We also know the story of Peter um, who declares in boldness, I don't care if everybody else splits. I'm committed only to, you know, hours later um, deny him not once, twice, but three times. And ultimately a little girl scared him so much to deny Christ. P Peter has a lot of failure in his life. In fact, the kind of last time we see him intimidated was in John 20 when him and the rest of the disciples are hanging out in this room with the door locked, afraid of the Jews because they just killed Jesus. So when you talk about Jesus as the rock and the founder of the church, sometimes we get this picture of somebody like this general who never quit. No, he had bad moments, and he had failing moments. He had fearful moments. He had circumstances that caused him to doubt. And yet it's this guy that God called to pen the words of hope to the church. So we got to listen to him. We know the people. The people are under suffering. They're under suffering for Jesus' sake. We know Peter who's learned lessons, and he writes this thing to us, this suffering manual. 
Um, but I love how precise God is. Because if I was sitting down with you and I knew you and we were across the table and I knew your story, I knew what you wrestled with, then, then, then I could almost just say it. You say, well, here, here's where you struggle to have hope because I know you. But in this environment, it, it, right now on the camera, there's several hundred people over in the conference room. There's no way that I would know your story. Most of you I don't know, and I don't know what you wrestle with. I don't know how hurt you are. I don't know what you feel like is too much to bear. I don't know what you would put under the category of suffering or too much or pain. I don't know what causes you to go, I don't have any joy, and I really struggle to find hope. Um, But God knows. God knows precisely that if you're going through some loss of income because of a job or your marriage is broken up because of some sin or some stupid decision or if, if somebody's sick or someone died recently and the weight is on you, if you're dealing with depression or, or whatever, that this trial, this pain, this suffering, whatever it is, that the, the, the letter of First Peter is written to the church to get our perspective back on Things that bring hope eternal, permanently anchored in our lives, not connected to circumstance, right? You understand? So this is huge. And some of this stuff is going to be review, rewind for you. Some of this in its, in its totality is going to be like drinking out of a fire hose. Because when you get a look at what God has done for you, I don't care what your story is, the conclusion is supposed to be joy in the midst of suffering. Hope, hope that isn't wishful thinking, hope that is more certain than what you see and what you touch. Do you understand, church? So this, this, is, a, this is a really, really big deal. The title of this message today is Born Again to a Living Hope. If you've got the study guide, that's, that's the title of it. And I suppose there's different angles we could take with the sermon, like uh, how to deal with suffering, how to wrestle with suffering, how to be encouraged through suffering. I think the first nine verses of First Peter, the better way to look at them is more like the proof that you will endure suffering. If you are a Christian, the evidence that the conclusion of your suffering will be good is here. So instead of having tips and helpful how-tos of how to process all the suffering in your life or the pain in your life, Peter is telling you you're going to make it and it's certain because it's anchored in Jesus. So I'm really calling it the proof that you'll endure. So instead of just surviving, we're going to thrive in it as a church because of what God has done. So I want to start by reading the first nine verses of 1 Peter, if you'd follow with me. Um, Like I said, kind of like fire hose drinking, there's so much in this. I I, I taught it several times over the last 10 years. I took out my my, uh, sermon notes. I've got nine messages on these verses. So I'm not going to give them all to you. So you're all right. We'll get home for lunch. But, But there's a lot here. Uh, let's, let's read it together and pray for the Holy Spirit to teach us. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through the faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There is um, a couple of perspectives we got to get on this. The whole conclusion of trying to find an anchored hope apart from circumstances and feelings starts with this first observation, and that is that the love of God superabounds. Um, sometimes you can look at an at a introductory statement like Peter makes in verse 1 and 2 and go, well, let's just get through the howdy duties and get right to the meat. There is so much in verses 1 and 2 that we could spend weeks and weeks talking about it. So I don't want to skip over it, but in essence, let's just call verse 1 and 2 the reminder of the love of God. And there's results of the love of God that we'll see in the next uh, few verses after that, the next seven verses after that, that give us a secure hope in the midst of suffering. So um, let me remind you of what it says here in verse 1 and 2. He talks about, I don't know if you're a circular in your Bible, I don't know if you highlight things, but that word elect exiles, and then the phrase, the beginning of phrase uh, in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God, and then he says in the last part of verse 2, the obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling of his blood. There are three particular things that happen there that we'll talk about today, but the essence of it is the love of God expressed in salvation of people. Um, This foreknowledge, um, the the election of God, some people wrestle with that thought, and be honest, this is not not a study on election or predestination. We're going to be studying Romans next year, and we're going to dig into that, but this is more a reminder of the obvious in Peter's mind, that God made a, a, a move towards you because you could not make a move towards him. The scriptures say we are dead in our transgressions and sins and unresponsive. Of all the word pictures the Bible uses to describe our condition, it says dead, blind, and deaf, right? Unresponsive to to the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2 says that without the spirit, a man without the spirit does not accept the things of God, they're foolishness to him. Like I can present it to you. Here's God's love. Come, Come in the flesh of Jesus Christ and he will deal with everything. And if the spirit of God doesn't arrive to open your eyes and teach you, this is stupid. That's what the Bible says. So this work of God had to be a work of God, had to start with the the throne room of God to us from the very beginning, totally 100% of God because of our deadness and inability. Remember what Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, stop. The phrase is better read while we were still at war with God because the phrase means at enmity, strife, We're not just dead and passive, we're dead and fighting, fighting against God and the truth of God and the the fact that he says we're sinners and need of a savior, we will argue with that apart from the Holy Spirit revealing to us that we are sinners in need of grace. And so the Bible says really clearly that that God demonstrates his love while we were still in that condition of fighting against God, that, that Jesus died for us. And in essence, and that's a quick flyover, Those two verses are telling the church before he gets into the details of the love of God. Here's his love expressed by the Father's will to you, to the elect saints scattered because of persecutions. It's obviously authored by the the Spirit of God. brings about sanctification and it's the blood of Jesus that covered it. You see the Trinitarian work right there in salvation in the first two verses. But there's some results to um, the love of God. And the first one will sound a little bit repetitive, but it's 
absolutely essential you see the sequence of all this. God loves first. When God loves man first, all these things happen, right? It's not that you come to Christ, you don't walk an aisle somewhere, you don't believe some truth, you don't confess something, and then God goes, okay, contract signed. God moves, he saves, he changes, you confess, just like that. Before you ever open up your mouth, I love Jesus, God has done the work, and that's why you breathe faith. You understand? It's all a work of God. So the first result of God's love that he says in verse 1 and 2 is that you've been born again. Something so radical happens to people who God reaches out and touches that the only way to describe it is that life has started all over again. I, I was driving down the road the other day and I saw a bumper sticker. It was months ago. And it said, I was born okay the first time. <laughs> And, and you laugh only because we were like that until Jesus opened our eyes because the foolishness of God is, it, it, this wisdom of God is foolishness to those who don't believe, right? But something has to take place in the heart, the nature of man, that man can't produce on his own. There's not any learning or wisdom that we can attain that will fix it. God has to dive into time and space and transform dead flesh, right? Born again, born, born again. Look at verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us. He has caused us to be born again into a living, a living hope. There are three activities uh, that God does to bring us to new life. Uh, the first one I've already mentioned, it's that man's born by the, the will and act of God, just like verses 1 and 2 say. Elect, foreknowledge, God decides when he decides before the foundations of the world who he will pour out his love on, and he does. It's, it's an act of God to save the other aspect of being born again is that man is born again by the work of the Spirit. Um, the Spirit is the one who takes the truth and applies it to the heart. He brings the conviction. Just like we're doing now, this absurd thing called preaching, somehow, somehow with the hundreds of people that are going to hear me today, as weird as I talk, he will precisely apply it to lives. I'm absolutely confident in it that he does that, just like he does to people who are hopeless and lost. Remember what Titus 3, verse 5 said, God saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So the Father wills and acts, the Holy Spirit gets, gets in and renews, and it's kind of like breathing life into dead things. You know, I, I, you, sometimes we think of recitation, like, like somebody's passed out and you, you do a Heimlich and you, you do, you know, some CPR. That, that even fails because that implies that there was sometimes life before. There's never been life in a believer, in a sinner, in a human, never been spiritual life. God has to create life from nothing, just like he always did. And so he breathes life into a blind, dead, deaf person. And that's the activity of the spirit, really powerful stuff. And then the other aspect of being born again is, is clearly it's, it's how we respond to the word. Now, um, he says in, in this text, that it's the word of God that brings life. The word, you know, John, it was real clear what it says. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the word. There are two things to respond to, right? I, we're talking, you're talking. Somewhere in your life, you've had somebody talk about sin and talk about a savior. Somehow, some unbelievable story that Jesus could actually satisfy God's standard for your sin and provide for you a righteousness not of yourself, 
So that spoken word, that spoken truth, that word of God in Christ is something we receive. We believe that, right? We believe the sacrifice does do those things. So we're born again because God acts. We're born again because the spirit breathes life. We're born again because we put our faith and trust in the word. And we trust in, we trust in Christ. So Peter reminds us this stuff because Christians who suffer, you're going to make it. This isn't warm, fuzzy stuff. This is certainty. This is as anchored true as your salvation, that you're going to make it. God made you his, unconditional, permanent, not connected to performance, and if God did that, no one can change it. So if you're suffering today, and if you've questioned whether God's overpowering you with this circumstance, like if he really knew your limits, he'd, he'd back off. Or some things outside of your control that you wonder if you can have hope and endure well. I want you to know that God's made a promise not to crush you. And I want you to know that these things are so absolutely certain. They're as certain as your destination and future and designation. They're certain. So of all things that Peter could start out with, he starts out with, here's how you have hope. Hope in the midst of suffering. It's because you've been born again. There's a second thing, result of God's love I want you to notice. In verse 4, if you look at it with me. Let, me. let me back up in the middle of verse 3 to read it in context. And he, Jesus, has caused to be born again, or God, born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Wow, an inheritance. The idea of an inheritance, uh, the word really means secure possession. Uh, if you're Old Testament Israel, you, you think secure possession, promised land, Right? God promised, this is our land, this is what we're going to have. And Peter puts some description to it. He gives it like three qualifiers or descriptions to this inheritance. The first thing he says is that it will never, it'll never perish. That word or that phrase means unravaged by an invading army. So whatever you think about your faith, when it feels like all the brakes are down and it's going to crush you, here's what Peter says about this inheritance. It can never be overrun. It will not perish. It will not be ravaged by an invading army. Israel, on the other hand, if you use the the promised land as an example, uh, even though it was their possession, they lost it a time or two. (laughs) They were exiled a time or two, right? Completely different than than our faith. Christians possess an inheritance that no one can touch. Your hope no one can touch. Your peace no one can touch. Your joy no one can touch. Your salvation no one can touch. No one can touch it because it's secure in God. There's another aspect of this inheritance that Peter talks about. He says it can never spoil. That's the NIV version, or the ESV says undefiled. The word defiled means pollute. Again, using Israel as an illustration. In the Old Testament, the, uh, God's people polluted their relationship with God several times. Right? So, classic illustration, Exodus after all the deliverance that God demonstrated, the power of God to get them out of bondage and they're in the, in the desert and Moses spends just a few, few minutes, days, too long on the mountain, what do they do? They build a golden calf and start worshiping an idol and they polluted that relationship. I want, I want you to get this. this. This thing just thrills me to talk about. Um, Christians, we have an unpolluted purity that sin in the world can't touch because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus. And I don't know if those are phrases you've ever heard before, but I don't care if you've heard it a thousand times, I'm going to cover it again. There is a, there's a problem that exists between God and man. 
called sin that Romans says separates us, period. And the consequence is unbelievable. It's death, not physical death. That's true. Eternal death and separation from God, okay? But what we need, he provides. God, who is just, can't just overlook sin. He has to punish sin. So in Jesus, he takes all of our sin. Everyone in here who claims Jesus as Lord and Savior, he transfers and imputes our sin to Jesus so that when he's dying on the cross, all of God's righteous wrath stored up against sin and rebellion, time, past time, now and time future, is being punished in Christ. God's justice is exacted, right? He is not compromised. He is not saying one thing and and doing another. He says, if you sin, you will die. And he did kill his son over our sin. And then this wonderful thing, right? Unbelievable. He takes the righteousness of Christ and he transfers it to us. So one two-sided transaction, right? Double imputation. My sin to Jesus, fully punished. His righteousness to me, fully covered, draped in the righteous robes of Jesus. Now when God sees me, what does he see? Does he see Tim, the knucklehead, who, who perpetually thinks bad things or does bad things or gets angry? Does he see that? He sees holy because I'm covered with Jesus. And it, it doesn't get better than that. It's not like, oh, when we get to heaven and he'll add a little bit more. I mean, he'll give us a little bit more holy. It's as good as it's going to get now positionally before God. Now, do we have a flesh issue? Do we have this body of sin and death that has to be dealt to death blow? Will it be glorified and free from sin someday? Yes. But as far as God's concerned, right, you can't pollute your inheritance with sin anymore. You should have screamed or something. That's good news there, church. (laughs) Amen? It's Secure. So if you're in the midst of suffering and you're going, oh, God, come on, just get off my shoulders. This is too much. You need to know it's too much. And God goes, I've secured this inheritance for you. It can't be touched. It can't be spoiled. You can't screw it up. People can't get to it and you can't lose it because it's anchored in me. He also adds one other qualifier. He says it will not fade. If anything we should understand in Arizona, it's the idea of fading. I, I have a hobby. I like to work on old trucks. It feels like every time I fix something, I put it outside, let it sit for a couple of months, I got to do it again because everything fades. My body fades. Everything fades. Um, but according, according to Peter, the relationship, this born-again relationship with God is something that cannot fade. Christians live in a spiritual world where no decay, no change ever takes place. It's un, untouched and unchangeable. Do you believe that, church? Yeah, well, it's true. And that's how he describes this inheritance. Here's why you have hope. Here's why you can remain strong is this inheritance that can't, as he says, um, perish or be defiled or fade. It's certain. There's, There's two more results of God's love I want you to notice from this text. And here's the third one. We are secure. We are secure in God. Look at verse five. Again, talking about this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The, the, uh, the phrase guarded uh, in, in the NIV is, is described as shielded. Um, either way, the phrase means garrisoned by God. Think about it. Now, what picture pops your mind? Garrisoned by God. It's used to, to describe a, a troop of army guarding a fort. So church, think about your faith when you're up against it, when you think that your circumstances and your suffering are about to 
crack you over. Here's what God promises. He is standing watch and guarding over your certainty, your faith. He is garrisoning your, your truth and your faith in him. You can't lose it. Nothing can, can touch it. I, I love that picture. Um, I want to remind you of a, of a passage. Just listen, okay? And I say this a lot, but just let it sink in. Let the Holy Spirit teach you the certainty of this stuff because this is really the essence of what it is to be guarded by God and be garrisoned by God. But in, in Romans 8, we know this stuff. Listen, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order